another episode of the Balanced Blues Brothers podcast. Today, it's just going to be me, Travis Flock, joined by our special featured guest, Tyler Wickham. Hey, everyone. My name's Tyler uh, Wickham, and currently I am an assistant men's soccer coach at Notre Dame College at the Division II level of the NCAA. I know you're at uh, Notre Dame now, um, and kind of what was your background as a coach before you got to Notre Dame? Uh, so before I came here, I was a high school girls uh, head coach for the past six years. I was an assistant coach with the program for four years previously at Chillicothe High School. So I was involved at the high school level for the past 10 years. And within that same time frame, I was also an assistant director of coaching for First Capital FC, which is a, a club football club in Chillicothe, Ohio, relatively small. Uh, compared to the bigger ones that we would compete against in Columbus, around 300 kids. And while I was there, I coached U8s all the way up to U18s on the boys and the girls' side. So you have quite an extensive background with coaching, pretty much ranging both boys and girls all the way from U8 up to now what's what's collegiate. So you've seen quite a bit in your time, I would guess. Yeah, I pretty much just got thrown into the mix when I first started coaching. <laughs> so yeah, within the club, I pretty much knew every one of our kids' names from when they were eight until they were 18. And then I was also involved in ODP in Ohio South. So that got gave me the opportunity to coach kids from Dayton, Columbus, Cincinnati, and, and travel all over the, the Midwest to coach against other state associations, which was a good learning experience as well. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, that's a quite a bit of experience over over 10 years in coaching. And so we'll, we'll come back to that and talk a little more about your coaching philosophy and and a lot more of that kind of centered topic later. But, you know, with this being a, a for the most part, Chelsea-centric podcast, I did want to talk a little bit about your fanhood as a Chelsea supporter, Chelsea fan. Um, so how did that start for you? How did you become a Chelsea fan? Uh, it's a crazy story. It happened back in um, early 2000. I was like in middle school. And, you know, in middle school back then, when you guys like dated people, you had to call them on phones and everything. We didn't have <laughs> internet and um, text, text messaging like we do now. And I, I don't know. I got a note passed to me at school. Some girl named Chelsea liked me. So I tried to impress her, you know, because I was playing soccer and everything at the time. So when I was playing FIFA, I just started playing with Chelsea. And I was like, oh, my favorite team is Chelsea. Kind of like as a way to make a connection and talk to her. And from that point on, whenever I played FIFA, I just put all of my favorite players on Chelsea and just started watching them whenever they came on TV and it basically took off from there. So your, your connection to Chelsea was very much a, a uh, initially romantic connection. Um, trying to impress someone by playing with their name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's a pretty funny story, Tyler, but uh, all right. So you, you know, you're trying to impress, you're trying to impress like a middle school crush and uh, using, using Chelsea online and FIFA matches and stuff. Uh, so a little bit more probably as the years went on got you to be more attached to the club. Is there any, you know, kind of season or players that were standouts that made you really solidify your uh, status as a Chelsea fan? I, I really started watching it more and more once the 2004 season came along because we had success. That's when you really drew into the attention. So obviously at that point, 
it was the players that were new and that were like the difference makers in games, the RN Robbins, the drug buzz. Uh, for some reason I had a connection to Cavalio. I thought he was great when he came in. So that 04, 05 season is when I really started watching football a lot. And then that, I remember that 2006 world cup was right after I graduated high school. And that's really the first major tournament i remember watching every game staying up trying to watch as much as i could and just watching the the chelsea players play in all the games yeah i mean and i think like you mentioned a big thing there that once they started winning here in the states is when we started to get a lot more access around that time as well to you know premier league matches and previously it was really tough to find things and i don't know about you but i felt like growing up and you know you you were in sort of the Cincinnati, you know, Columbus area, if I'm not mistaken. And I was more Indianapolis based, but it seemed like here, at least in these parts, I don't know if it was like that over in your area, but uh, over here, it was pretty much Man United and Chelsea for most of the mid to late 2000s. It's about all you would really see as far as people that were actually fans or who you would meet, you know, around your own age. It seems like that was really only two teams that most people I knew paid attention to. Was that kind of the same for you? Yeah, I mean, we pretty much only got a certain amount of games on TV. You either had a Champions League game on ESPN2 right after school or, yep, you had, yep. or you had the Fox Soccer channel at the time. And I didn't have Fox Soccer. So I would just, like, we had a, a family friends live down the street and they had direct TV. And so they had Fox Soccer. So I would go over every Saturday morning and they would just let me watch in their basement on their spare TV. So I would go down there and watch Premier League games and then... If we got out of school in time, I would go home and watch the Champions League. I still have the the Barcelona Chelsea game where Messi gets red carded. It was like Messi's like first start, I think, in the Champions League when he was like young, young. But he got sent off. I have that on VHS somewhere at my house <laughs> from from where I filmed it because I hadn't got home from school yet, so I had the VCR like set to start recording at like two o'clock or whatever. So, oh, I remember those days getting the VCR yeah. set to record on tapes. I remember that. Yep. So. The good old days, just trying to watch as much as I could whenever it was on because it was all so new and, and all the players, you know, they weren't household names. And watching Fox soccer and you have to watch this, the La Liga over in Spain and you have Juan Riquelme running around out there. No one knows who he is, but, you know, when you start watching him and you see how good he is, then you start talking about him to your friends and you kind of feel cool that they don't know who he is. So that's always nice. <laughs> I mean, it really was kind of... Uh a difficulty to find games back in the day. Like you said, you know, you had to go to a neighbor's house and watch games on their spare TV. And it really was a lot of limited access for a lot of us fans. So, I mean, the fact that, you know, you're able to see these things and even begin to discuss with people, you probably find, at least I did, that very few people actually know what you're talking about, even as the years got on into like the, you know, the late 2000s. I still kind of saw that pattern as well. But, you know, the game has improved a lot here. Uh, well, as far as viewership, um, and we can get to maybe the state of American soccer later, a little foreshadowing there. But as far as viewership goes here in America, it has improved quite a bit. It's a lot more accessible now, but it is it seems like it is progressively moving towards, you know, these streaming platforms to get your your Premier League or Champions League or Europa League games. Maybe that's the inevitability, but it's, it seems like that's happening elsewhere. But it was a lot better than what it was before. And for any like the foreign listeners out there that are not in the United States, it's been a progressive upward trajectory for viewership in America. But you know, even as early as 15 years ago, it was very difficult to find the sport because it just wasn't very popular or cared about here. There really wasn't much of a culture. But you know, Tyler and me will talk more 
later on about coaching and kind of the state of American soccer. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about, um, did you have any you know, favorite manager from uh, any years as a Chelsea fan? Jose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, most people would say Jose. I, would, I understand that. So I, I kind of got attached to Jose after his, his spell at Chelsea. Well, his first spell. It, it was right when he, he had just got to Inter Milan. And that's right around when I was finishing up my, my collegiate playing career. And I was starting to think about getting into coaching and stuff. And, and you know, that's when all the information really started leaking out about like, you know, Jose's tactile periodization and, and how he plans and how his training is so different than everybody else. And, and I just started looking into that and I always enjoyed knowing that stuff when I played, like, why are we playing for so long? And, or why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? I was always kind of curious. So when that information leaked out, it kind of like sparked an interest. And then the more and more I've looked at it over the, the past you know three or four years, and, and I've got to apply some of it myself um, with my teams, you really see how far ahead of the curve he was. Even John Terry spoke about it, that his very first training session, they had balls out. You know, John Terry said was completely new. Like he'd never done that. It was always, you know, you never had a ball out at the beginning. And he said, Jose always did all this stuff that no one would do. And now it's common around the world. And he said he was just ahead of his time in that regard. And, you know, looking at it now, looking at his teams, the amount of injuries they didn't have, being able to play with the same team every week uh, and perform and win games like they did back in 04 and 05. And then when he went to Milan, he did it. And when he did it at Madrid, and they came back. And now looking at the struggles that he's had from the teams at United and, and, and Tottenham, it's, I mean, it's really interesting to look at his body of work over, the, over his career and, and see like, the, the differences and the struggles he's had and, and why he's had those struggles at all his places. So he's probably my number one. And then after that, it was probably Antonio Conte, just because how he came in and completely changed systems and got players to buy in. And he was probably the number two and then probably Carlo. Carlo's probably one of my top three or four managers. It's pretty, it's like an inspiring story as far as Jose Mourinho and his coaching style and what he did and how that kind of inspired you to get along the track that you're on. That's, that's quite a story. And I mean, he is an inspirational and pretty transformative coach throughout his career. But I, I would say, and probably a lot of the listeners by now might know this, that you know, I, it is good to hear that your second favorite I can handle that is Antonio Conte. Uh, <laughs> that's that's my favorite uh, by quite some margin, and I, I understand that there's pitfalls to him as a manager. But I uh, I don't know if I'd have it any other way. I really like the just his yeah. overall philosophy and tactics and things. But you know, Mourinho, I, I do think that in the modern day, you know, you touched upon how he's going through these this, these different battles that you know United and how. He didn't really win anything outside it with domestically. He didn't win anything. He he went to the Europa League and won that. But you know he did finish second with them and called that his greatest achievement as a manager. And many ridiculed him for that statement, comparing it to the the treble winning season at Inter. Um, and then now, like you're saying, look at Spurs. It's it's seeing a much more different scenario for him. You know he's no longer being at the club where I know I would say I don't know if he's is he expected to win a title every year at Spurs. Probably not. So why do you think that, you know, aside from maybe injuries and the game changing, or maybe that is the main reason, like, why do you think aside from injuries that, uh, that maybe Mourinho is struggling a little bit more in modern day? 
I think he's struggling because the players are completely different to the ones he had at Chelsea. Oh, that's a great point. I, I think that's a huge difference. When when you look at the players he originally had in his first spell at Chelsea, like I, I know that John Terry and Lamps and Czech and Drogba, like that spine that he really brought in that you know survived and, and provided us with so much over the years. All of those players were as Jose has labeled as like soldiers. Those players would do whatever they were told to do for their manager because they were so bought in. And I don't think you have those players anymore in the Premier League. You just look at the, the young players coming through. The young players coming through are hailed already as the next saviors. So they're already labeled or they're entitled to great things. And so they don't feel like they have to put the work in. And I think he's, he really struggles with those players. Emma Hayes, she, uh, she mentioned a Nemanja Matic interview after the game. And in the interview, he mentioned soldiers. Like, we want to be soldiers for Jose. So she said, when you have players that speak about you like that, you know they're willing to do whatever they want compared to the ones who are just like, oh, yeah, the, no, the, man, the gaffer told me to do this today compared to the people who are like, we'll, we will be his soldiers. So it's a completely different set of, of players. And I also think he struggled at United because I think the club was, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to slam United too bad, even though like they're a rival for us, like competition wise. But historically, they're not a club who has an outspoken manager like Jose. So I feel like when he went to United, he was told how to behave. And I don't think he handled that very well either because he wasn't himself. And I think they restricted on him on how he spoke to the media and the things that he could say and, and do. And then the moment he left, I mean, just look at him at Tottenham compared to how he was at United. He never had those quirky comments in the press. He was never outspoken. He never caused controversy. And then he went to Spurs. And now he has Instagram and he posts stuff all the time. And he's always saying something to the media. So I, I think the clubs had a, a big effect on him as well. And I think at Tottenham, I don't think he's expected to win. I think he wants to win, but I don't know if the club shares the same values as him. So it's going to be interesting, but I also don't think he has soldiers. I think he's tried to bring in some soldiers. Uh, like Hoyt, Hoytbeer kind of seems like one of his soldiers right now. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, he, he's complained about the defense and I wouldn't be surprised if he's playing players that are in bad port, run of form because he's kind of done it before where he's asked for certain players and hasn't got them and then has played players who just aren't good enough to be like, listen, this is why I asked for other players. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's doing that as well to kind of like send a message like, I want a new center back. The two I have are bad. So I'm going to play the two bad ones to show you just how bad they are. I mean, it definitely seems like something he would do to prove a point. Yeah, if that means he, he gets fired from that, then I think he's willing to, to bite that bullet. But I think different group of players... Different clubs, different expectations from the clubs have really all led into him being kind of in a struggle right now. It, it has been a struggle. And, you know, there's been a lot of injuries. And one key injury that's come up recently was the Harry Kane injury. And it, it's just dramatic how different that Spurs team is with and without Harry Kane. And, you know, so talking about some of the rivals that are around us right now, especially Spurs and, you know, who were at one point looking like they were a very, very strong team that might actually have a title challenge this season, but kind of fell apart around the same time that Chelsea did. And speaking of that, it's been a very tumultuous season for Chelsea, to say the least. Uh, you know, it's been started off a little rocky, got better, but still maybe not the greatest. And then it just all kind of went downhill so quickly. And 
you know, led to the dismissal of Lombard. It saw Chelsea in 10th place with people uh, above them with games in hand. And it, it just really looked like the top four was more or less possibly a lost cause this year. And it was kind of a failed objective. But I, I wanted to give you a little bit of a, a chance to assess this, what you've seen from Chelsea this season and what's gone on. And one key thing is your perspective with a lot of experience as a coach uh, will probably differ from the you know experiences of fans and, and, and players and so on. So I want to give you a chance to break down what you think this current status or state of the Chelsea squad is this season. So before I get into like the status, I just wanted to put out there. So like I wasn't one of the, you know, a lot of people were like calling for Frank's head and everything. And I was never a Frank out guy, but I was never a Frank in from the beginning guy. I think in my opinion at the time, it was just one of those where we needed to smooth over from the the sorry situation and, and having a familiar face would help with that. I, I think the moment we hired Frank, he was he was set up to fail. Now, I would love to have him back after he had some experience elsewhere because I, I do think that this job, this early in his career, he was he was never set up to, to succeed. I think he got by last year. Uh, I think the quarantine COVID period helped a lot because it allowed some players to get healthy and kind of stopped some of the other teams' momentum. Um, one of the questions that I asked was, if we didn't have that COVID period, would we have still been on the downfall? And would have Leicester been on their downfall? Or they've been playing well like they were before the COVID break? It also helped United get healthy and you know give some games to catch us. So it, the, I think the COVID thing helped them because it allowed some of our better players to return. But moving forward, it was just a hard situation because I don't think he quite understood how to handle some of the players. And if you just compare how he handled some of the players to how Tuchel's handled them now, giving players games, you know, rotating the squad, give, giving everyone a chance. And I know he's doing it because he's a new manager, but he's also doing it with some experience to build some players up who may have been left out of the squad over the course of the time. So I feel like moving forward, we do have a very interesting project because of how young we are uh, with, the, with the youth players coming through. But I'm interested to see how they get integrated because. You know, last year we relied on the youth players so much and they were so up and down. And, you know, one week this player is world class and the next week he should be removed from the team. And, and that's this, pretty typical of youth players, right? Kind of going through yeah. inconsistency. Yeah, which is, is going to happen because they're young. I think if we have a squad that is an established squad and if we need to give someone a break, we have a young player that can step in and do the job and and honestly, I know I've been big on sending Billy Gilmore on loan, but he, he's doing exactly what he should be doing in the squad right now. When he's called upon, he's done well. And, and that's exactly what we need him to do. We don't need to give him too much too soon. Like I feel like last year when he played at Leicester and he got subbed off at halftime was if those things happen too much, it could be really, really bad for young players. Yeah. So I think utilizing the squad in the correct way, giving some guys chances here, giving some people with breaks, knowing that you have young players with some quality that can come in and contribute, those are huge. Those moments are huge. And I don't know if our previous management staff understood that, but it looks like Tuchel does, which is a plus. And just really excited to, to watch what happens goes forward. He seems like we're playing well. He seems like our, our players understand the tactics and stuff that they want to do during games. So always a big plus. 
I, I think you're talking about youth. Uh, it was a great point because although we have a lot of very talented youth, you, you did see a lot that when you rely upon youth, there's going to be inconsistency along the way. There's going to be ups and downs. And that's just because that player is still figuring out their own game and their own role and their own development, let alone being a week in, week out, seven out of 10 starter for a European super club. Well, especially with the amount of games and how short, like how just congested everything was. Like there are some weeks where you're playing like two days in between games and you have to use your squad because if you don't, you're just going to have players amount with injuries. And like, I, I can't connect the dots because if I connect the dots, it's it's just making assumptions. But I, I want to see how it's affecting our current players because, you know, Pelusic's been out for a while and yeah. he's had little injuries. I mean, nonstop since that FA Cup final. Yeah, so has was he rushed back too soon, or was you know would that have been an opportunity to give you know another player a chance to give him another day, knowing that the long term project would be better? It's it, there's just a lot of questions that you know we we ask and like we're not going to get answers because we don't you know we don't sit in the the dressing room or the coach's office, so we don't know the results of those conversations. But they're just questions that we can ask and, and talk about, and you know a lot of people are talking about Plusic's injury and as well as you know Kai Havertz. Kante's just coming back from injury. and There's know, been a lot, a lot of talk of Hakeem Ziyech too right now. Yeah, Ziyech is out as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how these injuries are managed and monitored over the time because, to be honest, every time I see someone talk about injuries and they talk about being unlucky, it, it's just such a cop-out. Because like, so how, yeah. right, if something's unlucky, how do you fix it? You can't. So like, there has to be an issue on why they're continuously getting hurt. And the majority of the time is load management. I know I said it in the message the other day, but it's load management. These players, they had the longest amount of time they had off, they had in the quarantine break, and then they were thrown back out there to play in the short amount of time between games. And after that, they had a limited amount of time off to go into yep. a preseason and to restart the campaign that they're probably not ready for. And when you have an experienced manager in those situations, they can manage that a little bit better than newer people, the newer managers. Which, you know, we didn't have at the time, so we're kind of suffering from it. Now, I don't want to say it's all management fault and stuff like that, but I think those are questions you definitely have to look at just to kind of, I mean, evaluate. And I think you make a great point there when you say that it is a very much a cop-out that, oh, well, Polisic is just so unlucky. Because that assumes, like you said, well, if he's just unlucky, that there's simply no way to change this reality of him being chronically injured which therefore is somebody just not accepting any responsibility and putting kind yes. of throwing their hands up and saying, well, it is what it is. We can't, yeah, control, so the literally question. nothing we can do to control it. Yeah. So the real question is why is he unlucky? Why are we putting him in positions to be unlucky? Or what are, think, what are we doing week in week out with his, with his fitness regimen or his footballing fitness regimen? What are we doing with his rehab yeah. regimens that are causing these issues? I said it last year, right before we played Bayern Munich, I was fully against playing uh, Conte. No, it made no sense. We had no chance. Yeah, I mean, the the tie was done and dusted. If we could give him another week off from training and then the entire offseason, I mean, as short as it was, but that entire short offseason, to come back at the beginning of the season would be better. But we played him, so we just just put him more at risk to get injured, which at the same time, what I'm saying isn't right because I don't know what it's like to manage at that level and have my job on the line. To oh, have to of play players to win games, right? But if you knew that like you were safe, then those are things you have to look at. Because I'm trying to find it right now as I'm talking, but we're, you're really rehabbing the player 
for his career. You're not really rehabbing him for the time being, but his career, because if you mess it up, he could be done for a long, long time. And that's a, and that's a great point because what happens, what you're talking about, I think, you know, I can see that if you have a player and your, your focus as a management and medical team is to just fix a short-term injury solution and get him back on the field from this injury, but never looking at the long-term, you're yeah. probably more than likely just to base upon the methodology of that approach. You're much more likely to cause issues in the short term and long term because you're not tailoring a plan that is fit with a holistic view. You're really just doing it to, you know, a very binary. He's injured. Let's get him fit again on the field. It's not looking at anything on, on a on a spectrum or relative scale of this guy's entire career. It's very black and white, injured, not injured, go from from injured back to to normal and on the field and not really looking at that. For me, I think I really agree with you. A lot of holistics problems right now come down to management. You know, when you see a lot of these reoccurring soft tissue injuries, that makes me feel like he was never fully recovered from the previous one and had to either change how he does things or overexerts himself, which causes injuries elsewhere because of that lingering problem. And I, I mean, anybody is out there that's played through injuries before, I'm sure it, it, it does change a little bit of what you're able to do as well as what you're probably uh, mentally comfortable with doing on the field as well. And like, you also have to think like, it's going to affect the brain as well. So like whenever you're hurt oh, yeah. and you're out, like one of the big things that I've seen, you know, just from like watching their little, the Chelsea unseens, which is no way facts, you know, I'm sure they're, they're doing more stuff behind the scenes, but like when the players are injured, you know, you really don't see them out there rehabbing with the team. They're kind of off on their own. So like yep. that can kind of play on their brain as well. You know, not feeling as a part of the group and also feeling that your spot is in jeopardy because you're not out there training with them. So I did when I was a player, I always lied about being healthy. Like I didn't want to set out from training because I was hurt. So I would say, no, I'm fine. So I could go and train when I really wasn't. And, you know, these guys are, are that competitive where they want to be out there. So they, they may be saying those things. There's a lot of different factors that come into it, but just to use the you know generic word that he's, he's unlucky, he's hurt so much. is just kind of copping out from a lot of excuses. It is. And, you know, some of our, uh, conversations in the past have talked about within coaching that, you know, this whole idea of you should never be escaping responsibility and saying like non-contextual things that, you know, in the end have no real way of being solved on, on the field or in training. So, and that's kind of one thing that we talk about. And I know you've got exponentially more experience and knowledge about this than I do. I'm still kind of a fledgling coach myself, but uh, I did want to talk next about one thing I noticed on Twitter uh, or social media, you know, wherever it is, maybe if you're on Reddit, whatever, and you, you look at different people and different backgrounds as a football fan or a coach, player, whatever it may be. But I see that there's a lot of differences between really coaches and fans more so than other demographics or, you know, types of or categories of, of people that are involved within football. I, I don't know if you see this as well. And I, I wanted to give you a chance if you do see it or don't see it, like kind of why you think there are differences between these two camps. And, and I think that it's nothing that's bad. I don't, I don't think there's any objective good or bad. One person's you know, view is better than the others. Uh, I'm not trying to insinuate that for any listeners out there. I just want to let Tyler, with his experience as a coach, how he maybe sees things differently now as a coach than he did as a, as a fan when he was younger. I think it is out there, but I think everyone, like no one's doing it for ill intentions, right? So like when you have these debates about the games and and everything like that, like no one's doing it because... They're trying to be mean. I mean, everyone just has an opinion. They want to talk about it, which is of course. fine. Yeah. But they also, they also need to understand that 
their opinion is right and also wrong at the same time. It's just your opinion. So like, for example, like if I want to talk about what's the right way to play, <laughs> right? My, my, Loaded question. my opinion on the right way to play is right for me, but wrong for you. And yours is right for you and wrong for me. And that's perfectly fine. But getting into an argument over what's right is, is pointless, you know, because you see on Twitter all the time, a lot of people will say, well, so, like the football purists of the world will say, well, sorry, plays the right way because he tries this passing game and he wants to score the right goals, right? Well, then you have the people who are Jose fanatics that, you know, pack it in, win games, one nothing, say that his way is right and sorry's is wrong. And you have the sorry people saying sorry was right and Jose's wrong. And neither one is right or wrong. They both exactly. got results. They both won games. They both lost games. It's not right or wrong. So getting into arguments over stuff like that is just so pointless because it just goes round and round. And at some point, you just got to say, okay, the grass is green, so what? Let's move on. Because you're really just arguing subjective coaching philosophies on what you personally see as the best way to play the game, right? You're not. There's no yeah. objective way for me to say that Mourinho is, the, for, for, in my case, that Antonio Conte is the best manager. I have no way to support that because there's tens of 20, you know, tens of managers that have way more titles than, than Conte does. And whatever, you could say, well, Conte doesn't score as many goals as Pep, like X, Y, Z. There's so many different ways that breaks down, right? Yeah, so like it, it's, there's just a, like if you have a specific situation or a discussion, all you can say, all right, so the objective reference is the playing style, there is no right way. Every style and every formation is right and wrong. Like that's objective. Because some win, some don't, right? If this formation and this system, if you won every single time, everyone would be doing it. But they don't. Everyone has their own opinion, which is fine. And if someone disagrees with that, all you can do is say, okay, the grass is blue, and you move on. It's like, we all know the grass isn't blue, and they're going to argue with that. You just have to, you just have to stop arguing with them and move on because they're, they're not going to change their mind. That's really how I've got into, that's really how I've started doing like a lot of coaching subjects and discussions online is like the first thing people do is they get so attached to their own opinions. Oh, the four, three, three is the right way to play. Right. You hear that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they get so attached to that because like their own like personal opinion and, and like that hypothesis, right. You're just, you're emotionally invested in that hypothesis. Yeah. And you, and you die by that argument because you won't let go. Well, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just not saying it's right because right for you. Yeah, it's just not right for you. it's not right for me, which that's all I'm trying to say. And people defend it and then they get so emotional and they go from that emotional high to like personally attacking you. And it's just like, all right, this conversation has gone a completely different direction. There's no point of having it anymore. And you stop and then they still keep going after you because they feel like they need to be validated. So like I'm gonna get the last word in. Well, no, I'm just smart enough to stop the conversation because it's not going anywhere. Like There's it's no a productive end to the conversation, right? Because yeah. you're and, and you can really apply that with a lot. And like with the fan conversations, like I think the biggest thing you have to understand is you just have to res- respect someone's opinion. Of also, course. Some of the conversations we have in the group chat, like, you know, I read, they get pretty heated, but I think everyone respects each other enough to say, all right, well, that's your opinion. That's cool. No big deal. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. And then on the flip side, you just get on like Twitter and you scroll through and oh, it's just man. getting so upset and like just personally attacking people. And it's just like, this is pointless. Like, this is not helping anything right now. I mean, I don't want to put it too bluntly, but just really stupid arguments. And what I see a lot of times, like 
and you know, this is a re- this is a, a softball of an example, but uh, like Jorginho, for example, right? Uh, <laughs> there's just so many misconceptions out there. What in the hell he really is as a player? And yeah. you know, everybody is everybody wants, and this really gets into the subjective view of the game and and how you see it and how that's not right or wrong. But you see a lot of people talk about Jorginho. Uh, well, he he's not physical enough. He's not fast enough. But the fact of the matter is, okay, that that might be a true statement, but the question you have to ask is, is that his role? And I would tend to say that was never his role. It, no. That just is not what he is there to do. It, it, it's kind of like asking a, a fish to be a frog. It's not going to happen, right? That, those aren't their roles. That's not what they have yeah. done their whole lives. The only thing you can say is like, and this is true, you know, I, I can say it, that maybe he just doesn't fit the way we want to play. Which, exactly. It doesn't if, fit the system. Yeah, if he doesn't, that's perfectly fine. That doesn't mean he's a bad footballer. He just doesn't fit the system. But currently, I think he does hit the system because when you look at him and Kovacek playing next to each other, you know, Jorginho isn't going to be a person who picks the ball up at the halfway line and dribbles through five or six people. Kovacek can do that. Mount can do that. So he's the person that's going to get the ball and play the ball and let those two guys do what they do well. And if he can't play the ball to Kovacek, he's going to try to find Mount. And if he can't find Mount, he'll find Reese. He just finds the players and allows those players to do their jobs really well. Now, is he great at breaking up the counterattacks? No, he's not N'Golo Conte. He's not. But he does a role, and he does a job like he's supposed to. And I always think it's funny when people talk about, like, all we need to sell him. Well, I'm pretty sure if we put him up for sale, Pep would try to buy him. And now the question would be, do you want to play against him in that system when he can just set back and pass the ball all over the place? Because they are so structured and so rigged on their movements that it's more positional play than anything, and he doesn't have to run around. Look at his and, percentages and, and the amount of passes he's he's made in our games. I think he averages like ninety two percent completion percentage on passes this season. Well, that and, and the, actually that was prior to Tuchel, so I think that's probably only gone up with Tuchel. And look at the players he'd be passing the ball to. So with us currently in, in our in our team, he's playing the ball forward to Mount Werner and Drew or Tammy. It kind of varies on that final yeah, spot a little three, bit. Right? So you put him on City's team, and he's now playing the ball to Aguero, De Bruyne. Sterling, Gundogan, I mean, Bernardo Riyad, Silva, Riyad Mahrez. Yeah. So just think like, so think about you put him around better players. He's going to be pretty good. I mean, everyone is, but if you put him in that system, I think he becomes a whole different player. So I think since he's currently on our squad and I think Tuchel's done a good job of it is he's kind of adjusted the way he wants to play to our players, but also not straying away too far from how, how he wants to play. It's just those lightning rod conversations, and and I feel like every time something bad happens, it's because players have hate towards a player. I have no idea why we're even hating on players that are currently playing for us. I mean, they're representing us. So that's funny. So they're representing us on the field, and we're representing them off the field, and we're doing a terrible job of representing them. And it it happens all the time, right? And I think it's... It has only really become more and more prevalent the longer I've, you know, engaged in social media with with Chelsea or football itself. It really just seems like more and more the game has moved to this this player FC or fan base where it's, you know, you support a player and and, and I've seen it with like even younger kids where it's like they don't really care about a club. They just care whoever Ronaldo's playing for. And yeah. that's who they follow. And and I know that's a very, you know, exaggerated example because many could argue he's best player of all time. But, you know, so like within Chelsea, I see it a lot, too, where there's, you know, support this player, but not really support that player. 
you know, I understand and everybody has favorites and that's fine. You know, I have my favorites. If anybody's wondering who they are, it's probably Hakeem Ziyech and Golo Kante, Christian Pulisic and Kurt Zuma, if I had to pick just off the top of my head. But I, I do see that a lot, like what you're saying. It's very much this argument of how do we support every player? Because we're not doing it well off off of the field as fans, right? It doesn't seem like we do it equally for every player. Um, and, and I know we talked about Jorginho and it just seems like a lot of times our fan base has this, you know, support for some and not maybe not support for other players based upon this misconception of the role of the player. Or, for example, it's easy to do Lompard. Everybody in Chelsea fan base probably has this idea that midfielders are supposed to be playing assist and score goals because they watch Lompard for 15 years. But that's just truthfully not very many midfielders games. And yeah. I, I think a lot of that in the past has influenced our, our opinions of players today and the roles they actually play. I don't know if you think anything has to do with it, kind of people's past perceptions of players and trying to fit everybody into that same mold. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, that's just what I was thinking of. Like, you know, before, you know, before Jorginho, our, our holding mids that played that in the midfield at the base, you know, were, were Kante. You had Michael Essien at one point. You had John Obi Mikel. I mean, you have these big, powerful central midfielders. But even I mean, before that, it was uh, Makaleli. Yeah, yeah. The, the the role was named after him. So exactly, it's just one of those things that I mean, people are always going to get attached, and there's always going to be one player at the club that people don't like. Looking at it now from like a coaching standpoint, I mean, I really don't care who we put out there as long as they go and perform and get three points. But the the three that I'm probably or really four that I really enjoyed watching the past few weeks has been uh, the ones who are originally outcasted. Keppa, uh, Rudiger, Christensen, and Alonzo. Alonzo! And, and, and Jorginho. Because you know, what I was really interested to see when they came in is how would they react. So would it be kind of like, uh, I'm here to prove a point? Or is it like, finally, this is my chance. This guy's going to favor me so I can just go and play? Or is it, I- I'm leaving soon, so I don't care? And to be honest, though, they've all came out They've all performed, and they've all, you know, their interviews have been been class. Even even Jorginho, when he got dropped last year, he said, you know, my point is to is to work hard for the manager. And you never once hear about them complaining. So all those all those reports about them going, he's our the vice board, captain. Jorginho. Yeah, and all those reports and stuff is just it's just nonsense reports. So, I mean, they, they are. I mean, everyone's going to get lightning rod, especially the midfielders about goals, because that's what we've been lacking the past few years. It, it has been a big issue. Even when we had, um, you know, even the last year under um, Conte and going into Sari, we didn't have that midfielder who was going to score 12 goals for us. It was very much a static midfield that didn't provide anything going forward. Yeah, and, and really that's what we're missing. And, you know, we, we have that player now and, you know, we have some midfield players in, in Havertz and Mount that can score goals. But, but to just lump them into that, the category of uh, they're not good because they don't score goals – I'm looking at some stats right now, and everyone I know people give Mason Mount stick, which I have no idea why. I mean, I don't know why we're upset because that we have an academy kid coming through and with so much potential. We oh should, yeah, I mean he's I, I, I it's pointless. It's pointless, but incredibly talented youngster. Yeah, but I'm just looking at his stuff right here, and you know people are are slamming Jorginho and Kovacek for not having goals and assists, and and Mason doesn't have that many goals and assists. That is slant Mason for other things. It's it's all stupid. It's all pointless. Our our midfield three, when they're on top of their game, they're all class. 
when they're not on their game, we, we have other players that can come in and do a job. I mean, we have like I know and we don't have to rush somebody back to possibly get re-injured now. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are upset with the whole Giroud, uh, Tammy, and and Werner thing, but there's at one point where Drew had nine goals in nine games. Like, if we're not playing him, it's a bigger problem. Like, he was he was on fire. He's on form. We need to play him until he goes into another drought. And then you need to turn to the next forward and say, okay, it's your time to step in now and play. Very much like a committee uh, in, the, like, an NFL team with running back, right, where we, we just play the hot hand every week. Yeah. It's like you have that, you have that unit of players at a position – and they all compete, and I get it that everyone wants to play, but if you have four or five players that are competing and one is just consistently keeping the other ones out, it's like we have to play him. He's on form. He's just being better than you right now, but it's going to drop, and when his form drops is when you need to step in. And I don't think that has happened in the past, but now you can kind of see that there is that rotation like, it's going to be interesting to see how everything's handled, but you know, it, in my opinion, if you're playing well, you, you need to play, and if you're not playing well, you don't need to be slandered and, and labeled as terrible. Everyone has bad games. I mean, Frank had bad games. Everybody yeah. does, and that's that's part of it. And I, I very much agree with you, right? As far as you play, who's in form? So that's a lot on the Chelsea, you know, kind of state of things and, and everything that's gone on this season. Um, and, you know, a lot of insight there to provide about, you know, maybe why some of these arguments in the fan base continually exist. But, you know, moving on, I wanted to give a little bit more discussion about your background as a coach. And, you know, a lot of things and we talked I talked about this with Jordan Collins previously on his episode um, and his background as a player from America trying to be a prof- in, in like a professional status. And it was quite a good story, but it also highlighted how difficult it is for many American players and coaches to rise up through the ranks and really find a whole lot here. So I wanted to give you a chance, you know, what is some of your experience of coaching? And maybe, you know, from my standpoint, America has many, many of the premier athletes in the world are here, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, whatever. I, I, I do feel pretty confident saying that we produce a very good crop of athletic talent in this country but it just doesn't seem like we get very far in in soccer football why i was going to give you a chance to maybe talk about some of these things and what you've seen throughout your experience as a coach well one of the things that i've noticed that is is completely different than the rest of the world is here in america we are so concerned with developing collegiate athletes and the rest of the world is concerned with developing professional athletes when you look at college soccer or, or football in the United States, the division one college soccer is the pinnacle. That's where kids want to go. We don't have kids that are, instead of signing a, a contract to play at a professional team at 18, they're signing a national letter of intent, which is perfectly fine. I mean, I played in college, but we're so concerned with getting kids to college to play soccer than we are to get them to be professional. Because when you look at the other sports, the NBA is the best basketball league in the world. The NFL is the best basketball or the best football league in the world. Major League Soccer is not the best soccer league in the world. We're running the best soccer league in our continent. I was getting ready to say that we're, you know, pretty much yeah. well behind Mexico still. Yeah. So we're, we're just happy putting kids in college. And then when you look at the, the college system, I've kind of looked into it from now where I'm here, but we have kids that, 
you know, can only practice in the fall. And then once the fall hits, they're restricted during the winter and the spring on what they can do. And that model follow, follows college football. Follows high school sports, too. I mean, it even goes yeah. down to the high school level where, you you know, I, I you can't if you go play in a club team, it's not your high school. You can only have five or six people from one yeah. high school or it's illegal. And the high school team gets banned for a year because yeah. six people on the same team wanted to remain teammates. Yeah. And then you and then you just look at the, the kids we're competing against in other countries for the collegiate setting. I know I'm not painting a great picture now. That I'm a college coach. But when you look at, you know, kids overseas. The kids uh, at Chelsea, for example, can train every single day, all fall, winter, and spring if they want to. And if that same kid was here in the in the U.S. system, they'd be limited on how much they can train with a ball. There's some days they can't even train with a ball because it's hours per week. So if you just look at that, how much time we're missing out on compared to the rest of the world, it's insane how much we're missing out. Now, and we do, I mean, we do have some of the best athletes, but when you really look at the sports we're competing with here, I mean, you have football, American football and basketball are by far the top two sports here in America. And then as a distant third and fourth, you have soccer and baseball. And I know people say that soccer is popular here and, and everything. And it is, but you know, relatively some, it's not though. Yeah. In some areas, it's just so expensive to play. And when you just go through cities, there's not soccer courts around the city. There are some in some cities, but there's always a basketball hoop somewhere or there's a field that kids play football in, like American football. There's always a place for them to go. And that just isn't the case with soccer. You just need a hoop set up somewhere and to play American football, you really just need space. You don't need lines or anything. You can just, I mean, everybody played backyard American football growing up and we didn't have lines and and, official field. We just threw the ball around. And then people can do the same with soccer. I mean, you can just set up backpacks for goals, anything like that. But exactly. you just don't have as many kids wanting to do that as compared to basketball or football, especially when some elementary school, there's basketball hoops already set up. Uh, or let's just go play basketball because that's you know American. We want kids to do all kinds of stuff. So they're going to try all these different sports. And it's the sad reality that kids just don't play a lot of soccer, like pickup wise. It has to be so structured all the time. Even the club. Oh, center, yeah. I remember our club that I was at. Our deposit, we we used to play against some clubs. Their deposit to serve or to save your spot on their roster was more than our entire yearly fees. And so that's not even a play. That's just a, that's just to put a retainer that you're yeah. financially, you know, guaranteeing yeah. or possibly guaranteeing your spot. And, and just that right there puts such a disadvantage to a large group of kids in our country. And then you have situations like I, I know in Ohio. We had two teams from Ohio, one team from Columbus, and one team from Cincinnati. Uh, they were playing in the ECNL division, and then they went to some showcase, and they both played each other in Seattle. So a team from Columbus and Cincinnati flew to Seattle to play each other. That's so unnecessary, and there's so many other teams they could have played between Columbus, Cincinnati, and Seattle. But they're part of that group, and that's how they, and that's how that group makes money, flying people around to showcases and stuff, which is fine, but once you start looking at football in the U.S. from that standpoint at the younger ages, you just see how it's so flawed and there's just so much that can be done to make it better. Yeah, and to give like listeners a, an idea out there, I've heard that so I, the you know where I coach at, we used to have a travel team that I played for when I was uh, a, a younger guy, and 
I don't think it was all that expensive when I played in what would have been like 2008 around that time. But what I learned that happened is they eventually had to dissolve the travel program, which was the premier highest division, you know, in this in this club or um, that I was at. And they had to dissolve it because it got to the point and the club that I was at was not in it's not in a high income. It's actually a low income area. I think like 90 percent of the people at the club are on reduced or free lunches in schools. And they had to ban the trap. They had to just bend the travel program entirely because it got to the point where it was a thousand dollars per kid per season. And nobody in this area can literally almost no one in this you know area of Indianapolis can afford that. And that, I mean, that, that is a significant thing. But I was told that a thousand dollars a kid per season is honestly the, the very low end of what most clubs charge. And that there are other clubs in my area that are up to two thousand, three thousand dollars for like one kid for three months and you got to pay that every time to continue each additional season. And so that, I mean, that's a massive financial barrier, but then aside from the financial barrier, you mentioned the, the fact that the NCAA just doesn't allow and, and high school organizations, they just don't allow their teams to stay together and practice. So I wanted to ask, why do you think that exists? Like why, why would the NCAA and in and, and these high school sports associations, why would they seemingly sabotage their athletes. Well, just to go back on the pricing, I just looked up a club. They shall remain nameless because I don't want to start trouble with anybody or anything like that. But their ECNL high school league for the fall, they only practice twice a week. And how many games they play? It doesn't say. They, they practice three days a week, but their Friday is technical training, whatever that is. But it's $3,400 for oh high school ages. And then their their ECNL that plays ten months out of the year is thirty seven hundred, three hundred and seventy dollars a month for your kid to play soccer. Yep, that's for trainings three days a week. That's a that's like a nice that's like a luxury card payment every every month. Yep, they do they do three showcase tournaments, and a national event. Which and then a lot of times when there's tournaments, you have to have an additional fee for that tournament. Yeah, and hotels. Yep, and travel, hotel, all of that. You know, I mean. So just that little example there probably gives a good idea for everybody that the system here is not meant to give everybody an equal playing opportunity, in my opinion. It's really set up to be a barrier for most people. Yeah, so that's rough. But then to go into your question about why the NCAA and high school has those rules and stuff, I, I feel like the biggest one I found here in Ohio when I coach high school is they, they wanted kids to participate in multiple sports. They They didn't want to have the one sport kid who just plays soccer in the fall and doesn't do anything else. They love the multi-sport, which is perfectly fine. The issue is everyone's definition of multi-sport has completely changed over the years. It used to be you played multiple sports. So you played soccer, then you played basketball, and then you ran track. And you did nothing all summer, and then you came and did it again. Right? It's exactly what I did in high school. The problem now is multi-sports now means that you go from track practice to soccer practice, or you go from soccer practice to cross-country practice, or you go from basketball practice to indoor soccer practice to band practice. That just, and, uh, I just and, wanted to say real quick, I don't see the athletically, what is the, is that, that seems disadvantageous to a player yeah. in my opinion to do that. Yeah. And you have, and you have kids that are just going from one event to another event. And you don't have coaches communicating amongst them on what's best for the kid. Because 
if, if I have what's soccer, best for them and their team. Oh. Yeah. So if I have soccer practice, let's say I have practice. I hate them calling it soccer, by the way. It's driving me nuts. I, I know. It. I would say I, I <laughs> but let's say I, I have, let's say I have practice at seven o'clock. Right. And I don't know that one of my players has basketball from five to seven. So as soon as they're done with basketball, they sprint to my practice. Now they're probably going to be late because they're getting out, which I don't know that they're coming from another practice. So I'm going to be upset. I don't know that they just had a hard basketball practice. And at the, at the same day, I'm going to have a hard uh, conditioning day. So they're going to work hard for me. I don't know that because I've not talked to their coach. Do I believe the kid? Because he could just say, hey, I don't want to run today. So we had a hard basketball practice. So I'm going to set out. Or is it true? So all those things come into play. And then if I'm upset because the basketball coach, they ran sprints at the end of practice, which made him late. So that kid's already fatigued, right? Because he came from one training. And I know that he's going to a uh, band practice after my practice. Then well, he's got to go set down for another you know, hour and a half and play an instrument. And so then I have to adjust my training for him. And if I choose not to, and I said, listen, you just got to deal with it. And the player gets hurt. Who's at fault? The it's, coaches are the ones that are at fault because they're not working together for the it's player. A shared responsibility amongst the coaches. Yeah, but we don't have any responsibility for it because who's the one that has to suffer from it? The player who got hurt. I think the state associations there, they want to avoid that. They want to avoid pigeonholing someone into one sport. But what they don't understand is that requires people to work together and communicate about the players. And I don't think that's done very, very well. I mean, from my experience, it, it wasn't. But it's because the definition of a multi-sport athletic kid has completely changed over the years. It doesn't mean you're doing multiple things at once. It means that when soccer is over, soccer is over. But that's not the landscape nowadays. People, There's club soccer. There's indoor soccer. There's people doing this private training, circus jumping stuff. It, it's There's always someone reaching out to these kids. And they really just need a break. And they really do. And I, I see it with, you know, some of the younger kids where they're like amongst these different sports and it's not how it was when me and you were younger and that it, you know, you, you played one sport and you concentrated on that and then you move the next one and you move the next one. Because there was a coach just, in high school and he had a perfect rule for his family. He, he told his daughter, you can only play one sport per season. So you have to make a choice. And she, I mean, she played soccer for, for a few years in the spring and then she got into softball. So she had to make the decision, but he told her, it's not fair for you to try to do both and let one of them down. Just commit yep. to one and tell the other one, I can't do this. Here's why. And the moment she told us that, it, it made complete sense. We're like, listen, we're not mad at you. We'd rather you tell us this now than try to do both. And hey, I'm going to try to be at the soccer game this weekend, but I have a softball game, so I don't know. And then we're waiting for her to show up and she never does. Like She just told us up front that this was her, was her decision and we we're perfect, fine, no big deal. We, we really appreciate that conversation so much more than just trying to do both. Exactly. And, and also you get players that are fully interested in only one thing. And then that's going to, you know, their mental state about that sport is probably going to be better as well. And they're, you know, therefore how hard they train, et cetera, et cetera. So just to move on, you know, you talked about some of the issues that exist from the, you know, really the bottom up um, in terms of playing fields going from, you know, a uh, uh, high school to a collegiate level and how there's these restrictions on how much you can do. And that's all the way from the bottom to the higher levels of non-professional football in this country. But 
So, and, and that kind of also touched upon the issue between coaches and, and not really managing uh, a player with that player's individual development in mind as opposed to their overall team and how they're also that player is working on other sport teams as well. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about the state of coaching in America. Is it very much uh, sort of full of attrition like we see with the players? Well, in my opinion, there's a lot of bad coaches, but there's also a lot of good coaches. I mean, you see it. There's a lot of coaches out there that it's kind of like an employee. So if a coach comes to you with a resume and hands it to you and he's coached nine different teams in nine years or an employee has worked at nine organizations in nine years, would you hire that person? I'd be a little apprehensive. It's, it's a little bit of a red flag. So you see it a lot in the youth game that you just see, like every time you play against a certain coach, he's somewhere else. He's always with a different team or different club. And it's just like, why? And a lot of it is he wins, right? I'm not saying that's wrong or whatever. He wins. So then someone's like, hey, coach, come coach my team because we want to win too. And he does. And then he wins again. And then they want to take him. And, you know, just because he's winning doesn't mean that he's right. I mean, there's a, you know, if winning validates what you do, then, I mean, that's flawed thinking. There's a lot of coaches out there who don't win. But they're really, really good at teaching kids how to do stuff. And then there are a lot of coaches. A coach is just going to be limited to seriously. I mean, what kind of ability am I being given with as a coach? You you can only go so far. So you might have a terrible team and get them to punch way above their weight but not win anything. Does that make you a bad coach? You know, that you you took a team significantly above its maximum? there's There's also coaches out there who don't know the difference, who literally don't know the difference between an American football and a football or a soccer ball. They don't know the difference, but they're really good at motivating kids and getting kids to go out and play hard and do that extra little bit to do stuff. Does that make them bad because they don't understand the game? Not at all. And you have someone over here who I know everything about the game. I've watched every video. I read every book and blah, blah, blah. But the moment he gets on the field, he has no idea how to communicate with any of the kids. Does that make him bad? So, like, you really have to look at the coaches and, and what they're trying to do. But, I mean, there's a lot of coaches out there that are just doing it for, for themselves and they just jump from one team to another or to one club to another to, to get to the top. And when you see those people, it's frustrating because I've made this comment a bunch of times. If you looked at the small area that we were in with our team, with our club, a very small I mean, we didn't cut. We basically took everyone who came to tryouts. And our goal was always to get them to the next level. So if they came in and we graded them as like a B, we wanted to make them an A player. If they came in as a C, we wanted to try to make them a B. We always wanted to take them up to their next level. And a quote that we always said was, we could go to the bigger clubs and do their jobs. The bigger club coaches couldn't come down here and do our jobs. Because if you're only focused on results and you're not focused on improving football ability, then you're not really making players better. So if you're given a, a lesser play, player talent pool, then simply just being a manager who says we're going to win what, or motivate somebody, you, you can't motivate somebody to be a better player, right? You need to actually have an objective way to increase that ability. Yeah, and they, and they, couldn't, and they couldn't do it. So that's kind of how, how we viewed coaches in our area at the club was like, we were kind of like, could they come here and do what we do? And you have some coaches at the collegiate level who 
I would have no problem giving a, a U10 team to. Hey, listen, I think you're really good. So I think you would work really well with this U10 team. Now, they may not want to do it, but they, they would make it the best experience possible. And there are other people who's like, there's no way I'm giving that, that person supposed to be a good coach. There's no way I could give them a U10 group. No way. It's the, it's the most important age. They're trying to learn everything. Everything's new for them. They want to go out and, and just do some skills and have fun. And the, the wrong person can completely ruin that for them. It's very self-centered. It's very results-oriented. And, and one thing that I noticed growing up, and anybody out there is a listener, I think me and Tyler probably have similar backgrounds from the types of schools that we went to and, and the types of systems that may or may not have been used. Um, and what I found in sort of maybe these non-metropolitan areas is that there, it gets to this point where, you know, okay, so I started to analyze and sort of reflect upon my time as a player. And I think the overarching thing that I started to ask myself is what kind of play style did I actually play under as a player? And I find the answer, and this is going to sound harsh uh, against my former coaches, but I'm not going to mince any words here. Uh, the systems more or less, we're just run. We're just going to run. We're not going to play any style. We're not <laughs> going to improve our any of our players' football ability. We're not actually going to improve their physical foot. We're not going to actually improve their footballing fitness. We're just going to improve football or physical fitness, and we're just going to run. And that's it. And that's more or less. I feel like everybody in this area, that's their objective. And and I've even heard at the collegiate level, there are people that run the exact same approach that we're just going to run and make subs all the time, so that we are athletically better than the other team and we'll just run more and longer and harder. And I understand why, right? Because people want to win. And if, if a team is just crazy about running and just not, doesn't stop they're a bunch of cross country and track players. Yeah. This is going to be tough to overcome that physicality and you might get wins that way, but it's not really, to be honest with you, at least from my perspective, that's not even football. That's just glorified track. I'll make I don't know if you experience that or if you see that, but I, I think it's rife over in my area. And it's it's very frustrating to see as a coach that has little to no interest at all to ever be a, a part of that again. I'll, I'll make the argument against that, though. So I listened to a podcast a, a few months ago, and they talked to Anson Dorrance out at North Carolina, and they were asking him about how to improve collegiate soccer in America and blah, blah, blah. And his response was, it doesn't need change because when you look at the kind of players we have here, they're not great technically or tactically, as some would say, but they're athletic and they can get going. And with the NCAA, they have unlimited subs. You're not restricted to three. Yeah. So if you can recruit and develop players the correct way, you technically could have six. If you play a four, three, three, you could have six forwards who are all good, and you could just rotate them in every 10 minutes. Yep. Or halfway through the half, a whole new three is coming in. So let's just say you have four wingers out wide who just want to get the ball and run outside backs nonstop. If you have someone who's thinking like, man, I can't defend this guy. Thank God this guy's out. Well, in five minutes, a new guy's coming in who hasn't ran and who's completely fresh, and he's, you're going to have to defend him for the next 40 minutes. Have fun. That's our model right now. I I argue that's not football. That's I I I really would argue that, and that's my opinion. And I, I'm okay to go against like one of the most prestigious coaches in 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 America in that regard. But I think w what you're highlighting is 
the product of the environment that he's in. He's in an environment yeah. where there's unlimited subs, so we can just run, and none of these people are trying to go professional. They're here on a scholarship getting a four-year degree, and they maybe will get an MLS trial and be an afterthought in three years. So yeah. that that's the system, and that system, that environment, that culture of win and unli- unlimited subs is going to naturally breed just more athletic players as opposed yes. to more footballing ability in, in yeah. the purest sense. And that, that's kind of where I see that a little bit. And it, it's a good counterpoint. I, I think you have to, you have to look at the, the ages as well. So typically, you know, you don't train football fitness when, when kids are still developing and maturing. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you're not going to do a football conditioning session with nine and 10 and 11 year olds. People do. I don't know why. But you're not going to. It, it doesn't help. You know their bodies are still growing. They don't understand how their body works yet. And you're having them. A lot of people are having them run miles and stuff. But you're not going to do it. So those younger ages, you want to you want to try to improve as much as you can. The ability to communicate, the ability to make decisions, and then the the ability to execute those decisions as much as possible. Like basically, you're so, increasing their ability to make football decisions or football yeah, actions. Yeah. So you just you they play as much as possible. And yep. by a byproduct of that, they'll develop their own fitness just based off of playing like that. Exactly. But, but you don't need to do that at the younger levels. Like they'll figure it out on their own. At the older levels, right? So at the we, we're talking collegially and professionally. At that point, the players should have a decent level of um, decision making and execution of their decisions. And at that point, it's your job as a coach to manage their the communication, so your tactics, how you want them to play, and developing their fitness through playing. Because at the at the top level, you're really more managers than you are teachers. And at the younger levels, you're teachers. But it's it's flipped backwards. It's viewed at here in America. If you if you coach the youngest age, then you're not very good. Because typically what happens, and it probably happens in your area as well, is who coaches the youngest age groups in your area? Usually parents volunteering to do it because no one else will. Yep. That's exactly how I became a UA coach. I reached out. I said, hey, I just want to be a goalkeeper coach only for your every team in your league. And they responded with, well, we need a head coach for the U8 division. That's yeah. what we'll offer you. And I said, well, I didn't, I didn't want to be a head coach. I wanted to just come out here and help every goalkeeper get better, but I'll take the head coaching job anyway. Yep. And then when you look at kids who or but adults who just graduate from being GAs or just get their license, what's the first group they want to coach? The oldest age group. And that's because you don't you don't want to start at the top for a reason. Because, because it's the easiest. Because you don't have to do a lot. You can manage them. You, you just have to keep everybody happy, right? But honestly, if, you, if you're coaching, your first job should be coaching the youngest age you can coach. Because honestly, as frustrating as it is, and it's like herding cats, Oh like yeah, have, no, there's, it gets really so frustrating crazy. coaching eight-year-olds. Yep, but some of the best moments you'll have is coaching those kids. And I, I know this is on the list that we're going to talk about, but some of my favorite memories that I've had from coaching is coaching U8s and U9s because those kids, they don't know the difference between winning and losing. They just want to go and play. That competitive, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win hasn't really developed in their minds yet. And if it has, it's because our parents have implemented it into there. But we have kids that are scoring goals and are trying to do FIFA celebrations. And like I'm yelling at them not to because it looks bad. But 
I'm like, why am I telling them not to to do this? Like, clearly they play FIFA. They know who players are. They're trying to imitate them. And you know, if if one of our kids wants to go and do the Ronaldo jump and and all that, like he's having fun. I don't need to stop yeah. that. <laughs> now that you so say like, that, there was a there was a uh, celebration by Lampard. I always used to mimic if I scored back in the day. Yeah. So like those moments, like the youngest kids, they teach you so much because they're learning everything for the first time. So if you teach something and it doesn't work out, you have so many more opportunities to try to fix it because they're not like stuck in a moment yet. They're not stuck doing something like that for the rest of their life. They could be, but you have multiple changes or chances to fix it because they're just, they haven't mastered it yet. Oh yeah. They're very much kind of like a mold of clay, aren't they? At that age where Mm -hmm. you can, if I tell the kid, this is what we're going to do and we're going to work to improve this. I don't have any pushback. It's just, okay. Yeah. It's it's not like I have to go through and argue with these people and they just do it, you know? Yeah. And it's enjoyable when, you know, when you're, when you teach them something, it's like for us, like we taught them skill moves, like when they were dribbling. So like when you have a kid in training for three weeks and they're trying to learn the scissors and and they struggle and then that you see them do it in a a training, it's like, okay, let's go do it in a game. And then it works out in a game and they score a goal. Like they get so excited and then they want, that's all they want to do. They just want to beat the guy with the move and you just tell them, go for it, go do it. Like go, go for it. I'm all for you using that move as much as you want. And, and when it doesn't work out, he's going to feel upset because it didn't work out. And that's a great opportunity to kind of like reel him in and just say, Hey, listen, maybe next time you hit him with another one and it's okay. And like, you just learn so much from the younger kids. And, and I feel like everyone, everyone should have to coach the youngest age group at least once just to learn how to deal with stuff and how you can kind of just sit back and relax and not be so tense or on edge on the sideline yelling at kids and everything. So you, you kind of mentioned like your sort of favorite moments came in, you know, the U8, U9 area. So do are there any ones that stick out to you? Yeah. I mean, every time the kid learns to do a move and they, they do it in a game or, or every time that we had a few moments where after the game, the opposing coach would come over and compliment our kids. Like, you know, the kids are really skillful. We really appreciate, you know, how they dribble and everything. Like that stuff always feels nice. But the the ones that really stand out are the the groups that I've had from eight all the way through. Yeah, the senior development. Those groups are, are, are pretty special. Not because like, they're good, but just because of all the time you've invested in them and, and you got to see them from start to finish this past fall was, um, the last was the last girl that I coached. I started with them when they were U11s and she was the last one who had graduated this fall. So seeing her, you know, as a U11, 12, 13, 14, all the way up until a U18 has been really special. Our current group of sophomores at our school, we started our academy with. When we completely redid our academy and our prep school, they were the first group and now they're sophomores. So being able to coach them for the past eight years was really hard to step away from because, you know, these were girls that, you know, sacrificed summer vacations to go to camps with us, who sacrificed, um, you know, weekends going to play in games when we needed players and we called them to. They're girls that I spent birthdays with at the fields. You know, we'd have games on my birthdays and they would bring cakes and cupcakes, all kinds of stuff like that. And a lot of girls, we just shared a lot of moments and stories with, you know, at games on the sidelines, waiting for games to start. So those moments are probably the ones that stand out the most. Like, honestly, I don't remember too many of the actual games 
But it's just those moments you spend with them all the time are the good ones. And then starting those moments with the younger kids is fun as well. So like, I'll never forget this. We were playing in a, um, in like our local league tournament and like our team, we had lost our first two games. So the third game really didn't count. So we just told them, you know, to go have fun and enjoy it. And we called them a YouTube game. Go do something. It's going to get on YouTube. And uh, in between the games, the guys were talking about what they were going to do. Like one kid was going to try to rainbow somebody. And yeah, someone said, the classic. Yeah, someone said he was going to try to <laughs> dribble around the goalkeeper and, and do a Maradona around him. So, Jeez. you know, listening, listening to them joke about all that stuff was fun. But it also kind of told me that they understand what we're trying to teach them now because they're talking about doing it in the game beforehand. So it, it's just little moments like that that you really don't get at the, the older level because everyone gets so serious and they start talking about, well, you know, someone's here to watch me. Or, it's all know. about scholarships and scouts, isn't it? Yeah, so those moments are fun. Yeah, and I would say that you, you're very much right. You know, I, I only have a year, one season with the kids right now, and but I'm still doing like voluntary off-season workouts out there with them. But, you know, I have one player that I work with uh, almost every week right now, and I would say that my best moment coaching, you're right, is it's not necessarily the moments in the games, but I after our season was over, um, you know, she came up and approached me and, said, you know, you're my, you're by far the best coach I've ever had. And that, that's what's, you know, kind of the stuff that sticks with me that, uh, and, and this is a player that I had in a system with as the only defender, the only dedicated, uh, defender, you know, she was back there most of the time doing a lot of the dirty work and always wanted to go up front. I'd always tell her like, I know you can go up there and do that, but the bottom line is the team is best off with you here. So that's where you're going to stay. I'll give you some advice for that. So I stole this from a coach. I don't know. I listened to this a long, long time ago. A coach told me this. He said, get two folders, like just the generic folders you used to have for school, and write on the outside of one, places you've been, and on the other one, paychecks. So he told me to do that. So I did it. And I had no clue what he meant. And then like a week later, he sent me a message and told me. So on the one that says places you've been, he said, just put a blank sheet of paper in there and write down every place the game has taken you. So I went to LA for the convention one year. I'd never been to LA before in my life, but I got to go there because of the sport of soccer. I went down to, to Rio de Janeiro for the World Cup in 2014 with a group of friends. I would have never gone down there if I didn't do the path of, of coaching. So I've never met these guys. So I went down there and I put that on my list. So I got to put down all the different places I've gone to you know, that the game has taken me. And then on the paychecks one, he said, it's not for paychecks. It's for every letter or little gift momentum that a player has gave you. So I've got birthday cards in there. I've got little end of the season. Thank you for being my coach cards, everything. So it's just little things to store because you then you start to realize how much you've really like impacted them. Yep. And it's also funny, like I still get some messages from like the high school girls. I still get little handwritten letters. And I've got handwritten letters from them when they were 15 that I also got when they were seven. So hmm. dating all the way back. That's pretty and then, cool. Um, we used to have a notebook. So I always carry a notebook at training and we have girls that begged to read it. Cause like I would just write notes during games and they're like, we want to see what's in your notebook. And I always told them like, you have no idea what you want to see in here. Cause like I've wrote some horrible things about you guys in here and they all kind of get shocked. And then uh, two years ago, my senior goalkeeper graduated and she asked for it. So she was like, hey, listen, I really want to see your notebook. 
She's like, I've known you for four years. I, I just want to know what's in it. So I gave it to her and she gave it back to me at our banquet night. And in the back of it, she wrote like a four page letter. It's little things like that that you don't think are really important. Like you just throw that card on the shelf or whatever. But like those are the things you want to keep because that kind of just makes the whole coaching thing worthwhile. Yeah. And exactly. lets you know like how much you're impacting. And honestly, I, I don't think you get those from just coaching. And I know they're different. And I know kids are different at 16, 17, 18, 19 than they are at the younger age. But if you impact them at the younger age, they'll remember you when you're when they're older. And if you don't impact them at the at, when they're older, they'll just forget about you because you're some other coach. Yeah, I think that progression of that watching that player and kind of coaching them from the beginning on up uh, is a very you know it's got to be an incredibly rewarding thing, and you you do see a lot more of what you've done for that person out maybe than just you know what they've done as a wins and losses as a team. But uh, so quickly before we when we wrap up here, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about your coaching philosophy and style of play uh, that you that you've developed over the years. Um, I would say it's still in the process. I, I thought I had a, an idea and then I was asked a question and I realized I have no idea. So it's, it's very much always evolving and changing. I had a coach. He's, he's a good friend. He's the coach at Youngstown State now, Dr. Brian Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Asked, I follow him on Twitter too. He, he asked me if you're in a plane, if he was in a plane and he was flying over my game and he looked out the window, what would he see? And it just caught me off guard. I didn't know what to say. I thought I had an idea and I just kind of froze because I couldn't, I couldn't put it into words. So I just kind of scrapped the whole idea and, and started working back on my own with an idea. I would say that it's changed. I mean, I'm pretty committed to a certain uh, player profile at some positions. Formation-wise, I prefer a back three. Everywhere else in the field, it kind of just rotates. I mean... Last year we played a three-five-two. The year before that, I played a three-six-one. I made a formation up and went for it. Uh, I'm kind of just all over the place. I'm I'm really just observing and taking ideas and like filtering it through and, and how it would apply to me and how I personally view the game and how I want to players to play. But I'd say two things that are, are pretty big for me currently would be a back three and, and I hate crossing. I love a nice cutback pass. They're my favorite. I know we've talked about that quite a bit. And for any people wondering out there why crossing maybe isn't preferred. I also don't really teach that to my kids. I teach squares and pull and cutbacks as well. If, yeah. if anybody's wondering, that's part of the reason why that is a, a low percentage thing compared to a cutback. And so I just wanted to say, I think that's a really good I, you know, answer to that question, right? Because some people might, you ask them that question, what is your philosophy of the game? You know, you might just get the continual, this is the way I see it, and it's got to be this, this, and this. And I, I really like that, Tyler, that you, it's this continual refinement. It's this always evolving, adapting process to make yourself better. So I think that's really good. And the last question I want to ask you about, um, given your coaching philosophy and, you know, you're kind of this always adapting, evolving, but there are a few, a few constants to your coaching. Uh, what advice do you have for any fellow coaches or players in America trying to, you know, continue on with the game? I would find out how you want to coach. Like, what's your coaching style? Like, some people are very commanding and they want to be in charge all the time. And you have the other, like, laissez-faire coaches who want to give some um, responsibility to the players. So you have to find out what works for you. And then once you kind of establish how you want to communicate with your players, you have to kind of figure out how you view the game because that's going to determine on how you coach. Because like if you're very command style and you're very 
I want things my way, then you need to make sure how you view the game is very detailed and specific because you won't be able to give those players options. You know, you're going to tell them what to do all the time. And if you're very laissez-faire, you're going to be able to, I think in the coaching world now, it's called um, guided discovery or whatever. You can kind of present them with options and kind of guide them down the right path and let them feel like they've chosen the right area to succeed in, in those moments. So I feel like you have to kind of figure out how you are as an individual for coaching and you have to figure out how you view the game. And then a lot of people are going to say, read and, and, and go all these courses and, and read the, read how to play a four to three, three, like the pros. Yeah. So like all those things, people are going to say to do all those things in YouTube. You, I mean, you can find anything on YouTube nowadays, but the issue is all that stuff is someone else's subjective opinion. So exactly. If you go to YouTube and type in finishing drills and, and you take, you know, Liverpool's finishing drills because Liverpool were the champions last year, you're going to do theirs. That's perfectly fine. It doesn't mean your team's going to play like Liverpool at all. going to play like your version of Liverpool. Yeah. So what you need to do is, is when you do find those exercises, watch them, critique them, be very, very critical of them, but then also realize that right there, that small little moment, is something that I can take and apply to my team because that's exactly how I want to do things. So, for example, the cutback pass. I know Manchester City does plenty of them. We do it completely different than they do. The only thing I've taken from them is the actual cutback pass. How they get down there is completely different than how Pep does it. And all I've taken is the, the general concept. I've watched enough of his stuff to say, none of that stuff is me. But this final pass to someone to score a goal is me. And, you know, and to figure out that is really, really difficult. It's a hard conversation to have with yourself because what you need to have is you need to have people around you that can challenge you and make sure that you can back it up. Because if someone's like, why do you do that? And you don't have an answer, you're done. Very true. You need to have a reasoning for for everything because players are going to ask questions and you need to have a response other than, well, I'm your coach and I told you to do it because those kids are gone. Yeah, you do have to you have to really know like why you're doing things. You just can't say, well, I want my team to finish like Liverpool. Okay, well, if you don't have naturally gifted finishers, are you really ever going to finish like Liverpool do? Probably not. So you might need yeah, to adapt favorite, your game in a way that better fits your profiles. My favorite is after every tournament or league year or whatever, you always get these emails. It's like, get your team to play like Liverpool. Buy this book for $49.99 and in 10 weeks, your team will play like Liverpool. <laughs> non-stop yeah. and then, it's and then two weeks later, everyone, you know, everyone can replicate it <laughs> yeah my favorite was get your team to play like barcelona that happened <laughs> after they won the champions league and i have yet to see another team play like barcelona since then i mean they've had enough time professionally so. i don't see it yeah i'm waiting for it and it's funny the closest teams that play like barcelona was pep's Bayerns and pep cities and they still play completely different to how those barcelona teams played so it's it's all that subjectiveness and then if you get on the internet and you type around, there's just so much brain pollution out there. I mean, people's opinions, my way is the right way. Listen to this every week. It's someone new talking about what they do, their flavor of the week. And it's, it just gets to a point where it's just exhausting. It does get to that point. And, you know, I, I'm starting to see that more. And, you know, a lot of the conversations we have outside of you know the podcast have kind of got me to see that a lot more, but, you know, overall I want to, you know, to wrap up here, I really want to thank you for all your time. And, you know, it's a lot of insight that you provide uh, based upon your background and experience and knowledge of the game. So, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. It was great having you. And uh, I just want to give you the chance to 
tell the listeners where they can find you if you want to um, on social media. <laughs> this is going to be funny. I can't believe I'm about to tell you this right now, but I just got on the Twitter to, to look at my Twitter handle and it's a picture of these little peewee hockey kids learning how to fight. Like they're punching <laughs> each other. I, I, I can't, I'm not even lying. I'm going to send it to you in a DM. Like they're literally like holding each other by the, the neck and just punching back and forth. And like this teacher comes in and he's showing them how to do it. It's, it's hilarious. I, these are the things this goes back into the coaching. This is coming from a coach who's very committed to, to winning and not about like fundamentals of the game. This is ridiculous. <laughs> but, um, but on Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is uh, TWeekom06. You can find me on there. Most of the stuff I tweet about is um, I really don't tweet much Chelsea stuff. It's more retweeting. Some comments about coaching and stuff is what I see yeah. every now and then. Uh, some thoughts on coaching. Um, some videos that I've seen. A lot of like little motivational stuff. I've not really tweeted a lot since I came up here to Cleveland just because we've been so busy. But if anyone reaches out to me, I'll, I'll try to reach back out to them. I've got when I have time. If, if they reach out to me during Twitter, I have no problem getting back with them. Definitely encourage listeners out there give Tyler a follow. Uh, you know, good, good at he's a very good perspective of the game, and um, usually never has uh, very loaded opinions or emotions on any topic. So these hockey guy players to- in Russia, man, they're driving me nuts. I can't believe it right now. This is hilarious. <laughs> I'll have to check this out when you send it to me. But with that, wraps up another episode of the Balance Blues Brothers podcast. Once again, Tyler, thanks so much for being a guest on here today. I hope all the listeners find this to be not only interesting, but very informative. Um, And hopefully a little bit of educational stuff out there for any inspiring coaches or players here in America. And with that, uh, also thanks to all the listeners out there. And until next time, everybody out there, keep the blue flag flying high.